โมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดามังสังขังนามัสสะ
what's the Buddha smiling at seeing this drunk minister going by and, and asked him and so the Buddha said oh you wait until this evening you see see what happens and um, yeah, something he's, he's going to come back to me again this evening and and so uh, the minister Santati heads off down to the river and has a jolly good time swimming and and had a marvellous picnic and and uh, a lot more booze. But uh, the, the grand finale was uh, to have a performance by this wonderful dancing girl who had been living on a very restricted diet apparently all week because she wanted to keep herself in good shape and uh, she wanted to perform as well as she possibly could and Tragically, during her final performance, right there in front of this minister, she had a massive stroke and died, collapsed and died on the spot. Uh, eyes and mouth wide open, and it was a ghastly uh, shock to the minister. And uh, he, of course, suddenly fell into hell, and full of grief and despair, and his, his wonderful heavenly uh, experience was was turned into a, a dastardly experience of, of grief and and loss, and quite beside himself with grief. Grief and so what, you know, didn't know what to do about it. So he remembered, oh, the Buddha, the Buddha. I, I can go and get some solace and find some refuge from the Buddha. So he went off to find the Buddha and and went to him and bowed, I'm sure, a little bit more respectfully and mindfully this time and asked for some help. And the Buddha said, oh, you've come to the right person. I can indeed help you. I can help you deal with your grief. I'm the right person to come and see. And gave him a teaching. And on hearing this teaching, which was about grasping, the Buddha pointed out that for lifetimes you've been lost in grasping, grasping in the past and, uh, and grasping the present. And if you can just let go of the grasping from the past, let go of all grasping in the future and stop grasping here and now, uh, then you will realize complete freedom. And he did. It was basically all he needed to hear. So right there and then, he attained a complete enlightenment. And uh, coinciding with his realization, he also recognized that his karma was complete and his lifespan was, was coming to an end. And so he asked the Buddha uh, permission to exterminate himself. And the Buddha gave him permission. And so the story relates how meditating on the Tejo Casino, the, the fire element, he rose up into the air. Uh, I think it says something like the height of seven toddy trees or something, whatever, however high a toddy tree is. Anyway, rose up into the air and then uh, spontaneous combustion uh, disappeared in a, in a flash and, and his relics, his ashes, fell to the ground and the Buddha by that time had already suggested the monks could put out a cloth and collect his, his relics as they fell to the ground. And the monks were of course a little taken aback by this. They don't see this sort of thing happening all the time. A drunk minister turning up and getting enlightened and then expiring in a ball of light. And uh, But they realised something special had happened and they very respectfully asked the Buddha, well, what was he? Well, he was in his full regalia. Was he a samana? Was he a brahmana? And the Buddha said, yes, my son, he was. He was my son. He was a bhikkhu. He was a samana. He was a brahmana. And uh, those three words there are what I've translated as, as a wayfarer, somebody who is on the way, somebody who knows the way intimately. And, and so the first line, as I said, of the stanza was, even though he's bedecked in full regalia, if his heart is at peace, calm, pure, contained, 
Uh, and this is a sign of samana. Uh, so uh, I think it's a very useful verse to to contemplate because it cuts through all sorts of ideas of what we have about what does it mean to be uh, enlightened, what does it mean to, to be a bhikkhu, what does it mean to be one who's gone forth. Uh, where the Buddha always pointed to, consistently pointing to, was that it's the heart that matters, not the form. It's the spirit. That he, he was asking us to to look at our hearts. That It's a journey, This this following the Buddha's teaching is a journey into the heartland and within. It's not a journey out into the objects of senses, into the world out there. That is what the minister was doing for the previous week and getting lost, and it was no security. And although it might have been relatively good fun, uh, when it came to the crunch, he lost everything and was totally lost, totally lost in despair, completely helpless. Although before he got his reward from, from King Persenity, he was this great, successful minister who had put down the rebellion or done something to please the king. And then the, the king gave him all these riches and basically he had everything he possibly wanted on a certain level. But then he lost it all just in an instant, just in an instant. And just like that, a moment of death. It wasn't even his death. It was seeing somebody else's death took everything away from him. And so the Buddha gave this verse and, and uh, it links in well with uh, a talk I gave a couple of weeks ago where I was encouraging people to uh, have a clear concept, a clear idea of the goal of our practice. Because if we don't have a clear sense of the goal, we can be going round and round in circles or we can get distracted and get lost. And I think I, I spoke on that occasion about the, the, use the, the metaphor of, of, of a, a reliable satellite navigator. Well, with this verse, uh, similarly, I think we can get an indication by contemplating this verse, we can get an indication of what the Buddha was meaning when he talked about somebody who is really on the way, somebody who's really realized, a wayfarer, somebody who really knows the way, a human being who knows the way. What are they like? So he starts off by, by saying, with a, with a heart at peace, with a heart of peace. And considering what does it mean to have a heart at peace, I mean, sometimes we might approach it thinking, well, it means that everything in the heart is always tranquil. And, and then if we have that view about practice, well, then the way we approach our practice is any disturbance that comes along, we try to get rid of it. Any thoughts that come along, we try to get rid of them. Any feelings that come along, we try to get rid of them. In other words, we, we, we anesthetize ourselves. And this is a, 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 classic, uh, a classic mistake that meditators make. That we, uh, the Buddha talked about the state of peace that can be realized, and so we want peacefulness. And so when there's something that comes along that's not peaceful, we try to get rid of it. But the kind of peace that the Buddha was talking about wasn't a peace that, that meant that, didn't, that nothing was happening. Yeah. The Buddha was at peace, but it didn't mean to say that he didn't have anything happening in his heart or mind. He had to think about things. 
You have to consider what to do in certain situations. All sorts of important, significant people would come and see him with their problems and he'd need to give them advice. But the difference between the activity that was taking place in the Buddha's heart and the activity taking place in our heart is that he knew it for what it was and we don't. So when thinking would occur or feelings would arise or, uh, in the Buddha's consciousness, he saw them directly, clearly, a movement, a movement of consciousness, but he was still. I think it's helpful if we're, if we're saying, what is the sort of peace the Buddha was talking about? It's like the image which you've often heard me mention of the ocean has waves. The waves are natural for the ocean. When waves pass across the ocean, the ocean doesn't think something's going wrong. That's absolutely natural. And if the ocean doesn't forget itself, there's no problem. Well, likewise, for an awakened being, somebody who truly knows the way, whatever waves, whatever movement, whatever conditions, whatever mental impressions or feelings or sensations arise in their consciousness, there's no problem. It's like a movement, but it's seen as a movement. So the awakened being doesn't go out after, doesn't get caught up in the movement, doesn't follow the movement, where there's a movement of desire. Somebody was asking me yesterday about you know, the movement of desire and, and how they always get caught up in it and suffer because of it. And yet the, what seems to be the promise and the teaching is that you don't have to suffer because of desire. You have wholesome desires, are they going to make you suffer? Well, it depends on how we understand desires. If we really understand desires, there can be wanting, but without suffering. So for the Buddha, there was wanting, but the Buddha didn't suffer because he knew wanting. He knew the movement of desire in the mind. And so for us, it's a matter of studying this. If we want that peace, it doesn't mean to say whenever desire arises that we just got to get rid of it. If we got rid, got rid of all of our desires, I mean, the desire to help somebody just wouldn't be there. There wouldn't be any motivation to do anything at all. Mm. So desire is a natural activity in consciousness. It's the understanding of that activity that makes a difference. And so this person was asking yesterday the question, so what can we do about it? So I was suggesting that, that, uh, that we understand the principle that we, if we don't know desire, then it's going to hurt us. It's like fire. Desire is like fire. Now, we wouldn't want to go and put out all the fire in the world, would we? I mean, you know, that's... A disaster. We wouldn't have this nice central heating. The reason that this wall, this hall here is so beautifully warm is because of that boiler over there. You might hear it—that little hum that's going over there. And the you know, that little hum there is a is a fire, and it's just in that room over there. But we're not worried about it. We're sitting here, cool as a cucumber. Well, actually, no, warm. That's not a good image, is it? We're sitting here, warm and comfortable, not worrying about that fire that's burning over there. Why? Because it's contained. It's properly contained. That fire is properly contained. When fire is properly contained, it's wonderful. When desire is properly understood, it's fine. There's no problem. But for us, whether it's the movement of desire or the movement of, of ill will, the movement of fear, if all we do is try and get rid of these movements so that we can become peaceful, we, we don't understand them. So we don't actually 
find peace. We're always fighting, always struggling against ourselves. So I think it's helpful if we're considering uh, the peace that the Buddha was talking about. It's the peace that comes with understanding. And not a conceptual understanding. Not just a conceptual understanding. We have, like this evening, I'm talking about a conceptual understanding. I think it's useful to have a conceptual understanding. But the piece the Buddha was talking about was the understanding that, that knows prior to the condition arising, so that when the condition arises, there's no. It's like the example of, you know, we, and when we were young, we learnt our, our times table. Two, one's a two, two, two's a four, two, three's a six, two, four's a eight, two, five's a ten, right? We all know our times table. And so, but we don't have to go around practicing our times table in case somebody asks us, what's two twos? So, well, I might forget. Two twos are four, two twos are four, two twos are four. We don't don't go around going two twos are four, two threes are six, two fours are eight. We know it. We know our times table. And so somebody says, what's two twos? Four. So this is knowing on one level, but I think we can apply this on another level, that when there's true knowing of the nature of reality, the nature of desire, the nature of the passions, the nature of the fire that flares up in our hearts, this true knowing of it, then we don't relate to it in an unintelligent way and suffer. When we don't know the true nature of it, we relate to it in an unintelligent way, we grasp it, like the minister was doing for a week. He thought he was having a good time, but actually he was setting himself up for a, a, a lot of trouble. And Likewise with ourselves, when things are generally okay, we're getting along, having a good enough time, and things are not too bad. But then something comes along and <laughs> hits us, and we've lost it. So, well, it was only a relatively good time we were having. It wasn't a really good time we were having. If it was a really good time we were having, it would mean that actually we were, we were abiding with clear understanding, clear seeing. So I think that's a useful understanding to, to have. As we're looking for the peace that Buddha was talking about. Pure. Yeah. What does it mean to be Pure. Technically, this, um, in, in this verse, it's talking about having been free from the kilesas, yeah, free from the poisons, greed, aversion, and delusion. And these poisons that pollute our consciousness, the radiance that is potentially there is obscured. Yeah. The brilliance, the clarity that's potentially there is obscured by these three pollutions, these three poisons, greed, aversion and delusion. And so somebody who's on the way, somebody who knows the way, somebody who fully knows the way, fully realized the way, has fully removed these three pollutions. That's good to know. And you look at somebody and, and uh, they're clearly caught up in greed, aversion or delusion, well, we can know. Mind you, having said that, that's not always obvious from the outside. We, we do need to be careful when we're uh, looking at the outside and trying to assess whether somebody is free from greed, aversion, and delusion. But certainly with our own hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest, really honest with ourselves, you know, well, is there greed, is there aversion, is there delusion operating? If you really know, in all honesty, under pressure, not just when you're on a retreat or in some very convenient situation, where things are very agreeable, as you can fall into the delusion of thinking that you've quelled greed, aversion, and delusion and removed the chelators. But when you where things are very agreeable, as you can fall into the delusion of thinking that you've quelled greed, aversion, and delusion and removed the chelators. But when you're really under pressure, really under pressure, 
and still there's no manifestation of greed, aversion, and delusion, well, well, then one can know for oneself. I don't imagine there's anybody here who's like that, but it's helpful to have an understanding, a conceptual understanding. This is what we're moving towards. Yeah. And this is what we can do. Again, this is important. You know, We don't just have a, a good idea about the path of practice. This is what we can do in practice. Yeah. I was speaking with a fellow monk yesterday about uh, what's the most important thing worth developing in practice. We were talking about the monk life and and uh, what's the most important thing worth developing? And, and I was saying, well, I think for me, I think of it as a willingness to suffer. That's for me the thing to really focus on, a willingness to suffer, because I know whenever I start to suffer, there's resistance. I don't like suffering, and as soon as I start suffering, I think somebody's done something wrong, either me or you or the world or something. Somebody or something's done something wrong, and so I resist the suffering, and so perpetuate the suffering, don't get the message. And the Buddha said over and over again, we've got to be mindful of suffering. Four noble truths. First noble truth, suffering. Why did he make such a big thing? The first noble truth is suffering. It's because this is the thing that we ignore. This is what ignorance does. Ignorance ignores. Ignorance denies suffering. And so because we don't see suffering, we don't see the cause of suffering. Because we don't see the cause of suffering, we perpetuate suffering. And so for me, it's really, I've got to keep reminding myself, you know, remembering that when you're suffering, this is not something going wrong. This is the message. This is the teaching. You know, we don't want to resist the suffering. It's like, it's like you know, the doctor gives you some medicine and you just stick it in the drawer and refuse to take it. Yeah. You've got, you know, you got some serious condition and... and Although taking antibiotics is not a good idea, unless you really have to, sometimes they are a good idea. Sometimes you need to take antibiotics, but you don't take antibiotics. You just stuff them in the drawer and get sicker and sicker. Well, that wasn't very clever. Yeah. Well, likewise, with suffering, the Buddha said, this is the message, this is the consequence. The cause is ignorance. And then we have this wrong relationship to life, desire, uh, resentment, uh, the passions, uh, they come up and we grasp them and think that somehow grasping is going to make things better. And in fact, we suffer. Well, the suffering is the right response to the action. So suffering is not wrong. And suffering is what's supposed to happen. If we don't create the causes for suffering, we won't suffer. Like the Buddha didn't suffer because he didn't create any causes. So he didn't have anything more to learn. The Buddha was complete, finished. That's why we call him the Buddha. That's why the Buddha was perfect. But for us, we're not. So when we suffer, this is what's supposed to happen. And that's why I say, put your hands together, Nanji, and say, welcome, my teacher. Welcome, suffering. Please teach me what I need to learn. So I have to encourage myself with this, because still, when suffering arises, I resist it, and I don't get a message. But my friend that I was talking to, he said, well, for him, if he really thought about it, for him, the most important thing to focus on was honesty, to dwell on honesty, to really remember to be honest. Yeah. And it's also, I think, very helpful. I, I really, I, I like that. I, I can hear that. Because yeah. if, if we're really honest with ourselves, well, then when there's greed, aversion, and delusion there, we know, oh, there's no purity. So we're less likely to be kidding ourselves. Now, if we've got a habit of dishonesty, which to some degree all of us have, to some degree, you know, we haven't cleaned up our, our habits that have come with ignorance, you know, we didn't understand the nature of the senses, 
And so as, as we went through childhood and, and adolescence, we started lying to ourselves uh, about our bodies and about experience and kidding ourselves, you know, telling ourselves things that are clearly impermanent, kidding ourselves at the permanent. You know, things that, like this whole thing of like gratifying desire. I mean, there's never, not once in our life, has gratifying desire ever made us perfectly contented. All it has done is given us a momentary gratification, and so we're freed from the, the pain of wanting. But as the years go by, we lie to ourselves more and more until we have started habitually lying to ourselves and we don't even know it. And, uh, and so we're continually grasping at things and, and making a problem of our life and other people's lives and we wonder what's going wrong. So my friend was saying that he focuses on honesty. And I think that's also that's really useful. Like if we want to develop what the Buddha was talking about, purity, we can ask, you know, what? What really? What do I feel really matters most? You know, as I said, for me, it's the willingness to suffer so that I stop resisting. There's willingness so I can learn to stop resisting suffering and then get the message. You know, what my friend was saying was to really just be impeccably honest. You know, not in some grand New Year resolution to write it down, I'm going to be 100% honest from now on. But in little moments... Of honesty, you know, what are we up to with the tricks that we play with ourselves? You know? Not to shame ourselves or give ourselves a bad time, but because we want to find a real way to be free from greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, these poisons that just make life so difficult. You know? If you've had the privilege of hearing or seeing or being near somebody who is pure or even somewhat pure. Yeah, that's really that's really worth having. That's really attractive. The heart loves that. It's, yeah. And so naturally we're drawn towards freedom from greed, aversion and delusion. But how, what do we do about it? Well, that's it. We can be honest. Yeah. Like with food. You know, when we're taking more than we need or eating more than we need, well, as soon as we realize it, we don't just put a quick judgment on ourselves and, and feel somehow virtuous by giving ourselves a bad time. That's a very kind of initial and, and perhaps not very productive, uh, or certainly not very productive reaction to having realised we made a mistake. When we realise we made a mistake, oh, that's wonderful, that's good. As soon as you start to suffer, say, welcome, my teacher. Please teach me what I'm doing that's causing the suffering. Yeah. And so we're honest about, oh, actually I ate too much. Yeah. Or I took too much food. Yeah. Yeah. Or the various other distractions, you know, staying up late at night on the internet and then waking up in the morning feeling absolutely terrible. Facebook addiction. Yeah, serious. Yeah. If you want to know if you're addicted to Facebook, then one of the things you can do is, are you pretending to other people that you're not on Facebook all the time? You, you, you try to hide your Facebook habits. Uh, I read an article somewhere recently which kind of detailed the signs of... Uh, or if, they, if somebody threatens to close your Facebook account down, do you start getting sweaty palms? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a sign. And the thing when you do that is, well, you don't just give yourself a hard time. You say, oh, that's good to see. Oh, yeah, I'm addicted. I'm feeding on some false energy there because if it was real energy, sustainable energy, true energy, Dhamma energy, it can't be taken away. Yeah. So if it's false energy and we're threatened with losing it, well, 
we're feeding on something that we shouldn't be. And so we want to see that. So that's good to see, if we're honest. We say, oh, right. Yeah. Or the other distractions that we have, sensual addictions that we have. And the world is so... I mean, these days, technology, <clears throat> not just Facebook and such things, but also other sensual treats. I, I read a, I read a, um, a report on uh, a, a researcher at Harvard University has created this, uh, this treat called, I don't know if you heard of it, called Le Whiff. Le Whiff, have anybody heard of Le Whiff? Well, it's basically, it's something that I think you, you breathe it in. I think it's like a cigarette or something. You breathe it in. But what it's got inside is not tobacco. It's got coffee. And so you just breathe it in and you get the hit without having to go to the toilet. You know, you don't, you don't have to be drinking coffee and you don't have to hurt your stomach. You know, you can just now, apparently it's been passed by the health people and you just the whiff. Now, it may be a harmless sensual uh, distraction or maybe an addiction, maybe something that you need to, you know, be honest about and say, well, no, this is not, this is not helping me develop purity. Or when you just tell somebody where to get off, you know, maybe you've got a skill at just really letting somebody have it and in a very clever sort of smart aleck way, you know, you just let somebody have it one day and afterwards you can feel so good or really put them in their place, so and so. And on one level you can feel great. But if we're honest in our hearts, not just good at storytelling in our heads, but if we're honest in our hearts, then we know, I say, no, that was not suitable. Yeah. So cultivating a path to purity, finding our own way of understanding what the Buddha, all the Buddha's teachings, how do we do this? How do we actually do this? Cultivating impeccable honesty is one way of doing it. Contained. Yeah. Pure, contained. Somebody who knows the path is contained. It's talking about restrained with the senses. Again, a few weeks ago, I, I talked about the compulsive outflows of the heart, the deep conditioned tendencies, you know, the taints, the cankers in the heart the, that are like grooves or pathways in the heart along which the heart's energy flows and then manifests as greed, aversion and delusion. You know, these, these deep pathways are very difficult to get to. But so long as they haven't been addressed, there's this outpouring of this outflowing of the heart energy, this exuberance and, and through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and, and also cognizing, thinking. Yeah. To recognize this with honesty, to recognize this, oh, this lack of containment, this does not accord with the way. That's helpful to think about. Yeah. Within ourselves or within other people as well, sometimes you, you want to check out a teacher or a teaching and and uh, you know, you get near them, and you, you can get a sense of you know, is this person contained, or are they all over the place? Like when you get near somebody, do you feel safe? Do you feel still? Do you feel cool? Do you feel calm? Or do you feel disturbed and stirred up? Yeah. Yeah. Studying the senses is cultivating containment. You know, to look at what happens. Again, yesterday I was 
somebody asked me the question about uh, coming off retreat. Uh, this person is doing more and more retreats as the years go by, and uh, and she was saying how she finds it really difficult coming off retreat. She just doesn't want to have anything to do with the world anymore. And she didn't make any noises about wanting to go and join a monastery, become a nun, so I didn't suggest that. But what I did suggest was to study uh, what happens when you're coming off retreat. When we're on retreat or in some conducive situation, like here in this lovely hall with good good friends and, and conducive environment, then maybe your meditation settles down quicker and you can be comfortable and relaxed. And, but then when you're out in a busy situation, maybe at work or sitting in the train station, or tomorrow uh, four of us are going down Dhammarawati, we're going to be sitting in the car. And from what I've heard, it's bank holiday Monday, what I heard, the roads are going to be really busy. And so what's it going to be like uh, in the car tomorrow? Well, it's not so conducive. You know, fumes and cars going either side and the air getting stuffy and and the sight, the, the view from the M1 is not that great. It's not like being here on Harnham Hill. It's gorgeous. The views we have, the air is great. A little bit cold at the moment, but nice and clean. So what's it going to be like tomorrow? Well, what happens is we study it. We don't just take a position and say, oh, I can't practice when I'm in the car or I can't practice when I'm off retreat. I have to be in the monastery all the time or I have to be on retreat all the time. Mindfulness of like what the Buddha called jitta anusati, mindfulness of the heart. Being conscious of consciousness, aware of awareness. So that when when it's a conducive environment and and the heart is expanded and open and, and bright, say, so, oh, there's knowing. We reflect, oh, this is what it's like in this situation. Oh, yeah, this is when the heart is open, trusting, bright, clear. You can, you can read your mind, see the moods coming, not getting caught up in things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then when you leave and then things, noises and sights and smells start to impinge on us, and the heart starts to contract. We resist. Now, we can just judge that and say it shouldn't happen or I wish it didn't happen, but that's very initial. What we can also do is say, oh, this is the heart contracting and know that. And then we can see confusion building up. Say, so, oh, this is the heart confused. So it's like when there's a, 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 a colour that's put into water. You just, oh, this is when there's green put into water. This is green water. This is pink water. You can know it with mindfulness, reflect on it. And so we can study the senses in this way. Yeah. I remember the first meditation retreat I ever did, and it was a wonderful experience. And perhaps one of the most important things I ever did was going on that meditation retreat, and, and I had a very good time. Well, I had some bad times, but also had some very, very good times. And, and then coming off it, I remember walking down the street and the smell of exhaust fumes. I've got a big nose, you might have noticed, and it's very effective. It really picks up fumes, and... I was just so disgusted by these exhaust fumes. I thought, how could I live with this? And then I had to stop at the, the store on the way back to where I was living. And and the people were so rude. I was just, I mean, I, I just hurt. Was, how could people be so aggressive to each other? And um, I wasn't very good, of course, and I, I had an opinion about it all. I kind of judged it and judged myself. And 
and miss the opportunity to learn from, oh, this is the heart contracting. So we can study the senses. We don't have to always have agreeable sense objects. when When it's cold and you have to be outside in the cold, what does it feel like to be cold? Instead of, I just don't like it, I wish I could be somewhere nice and warm, like Ajahnabhinanda in Menorca right now. It's okay for him. That's, that's pointless, isn't it, really? You say, well, this is what it's like to be cold. I mean, yesterday I was down at the lake. I only went down briefly. Was it this morning? It was this morning, I think. I went down briefly and came straight back to my warm cootie. But at the time, when you're suffering from the cold, you can study it, or you're suffering from you know, bad food or... Yeah, bad smells. We can study the senses. And so in this way we can cultivate containment. And it's not just like we have to crack the jhanas and bust through until we can quell the, the, the five hindrances for good and then we'll have containment. I mean, you can try that path if you want. But you can also study the senses in daily life you know, when things are disagreeable and when things are agreeable. When things are really agreeable... And you're feeling really nice, really, really nice. And you're, oh, right, yeah, this is, this is what it's like when it feels really nice. Getting interested. And interest teaches us. You know, we don't have to read books necessarily about it. Uh, you know, we can get interest. Our interest in reality teaches us. Peaceful, pure, contained, and awake. Yeah. Somebody who knows the path is awake. You know, has insight, has direct insight into the nature of reality. And I like to reflect on how the Buddha referred to himself when, when soon after his enlightenment, after his complete liberation, he, somebody asked him if he was a, a god. And he's not a god, is he a human being? He's not a human being. He's awake. Yeah. He's awake. Yeah. He's a Buddha. And that's what Buddha means. He's awake. In other words, he sees clearly and it's not, you know, that, that can help us uh, not get caught in the trick of, I've just got to get more information. Yeah. I need to know more about reality, which is fair enough on, on one level. We do, do need to know a certain amount about the Buddha's teachings, just as in, in, in our normal daily life, we need to know a certain amount about the objects. If you don't know anything about your iPod, it won't play. I mean, there's no manual. You know, you've got to know a certain amount, and, and it's not. There's no knobs on it. There's dials, and you've got to know a certain amount of where to turn the thing on, and where to turn it off, and where to push it, and how to twiddle it. And because you know, an iPod can be a wonderful thing if you know a certain amount about it. Once you know a certain amount about it, well, then you just use it, and then you learn from the using of it. Yeah. Well, as with Dhamma, depending on the kind of minds we've got, to, to, to quell the doubt, the, the sceptical doubt in our minds, we need to know a certain amount about Dhamma. But that's enough. Then we need to do it. Then we need to work with it. We need to get on with it. Then we need to move towards simply waking up to reality and being honest in this moment. When we're angry, to be honest about anger. When we're scared, afraid. Yeah. When we're feeling kindly, to know it, to study it. And then the last uh, point referred to in this verse is blameless. 
and it's referring uh, technically it's, it's, it, what it talks about in, in the Pali is somebody who's put down all weapons, you know, so totally harmless. There's not no no impulse for harming living beings, yeah. and that that's that's wonderful to reflect on. I was reading again a report. I made some notes of a report some time ago. I think I might have read it on the Buddhist Channel that website, but it was a situation, a tragic situation in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Some of you may remember. I think it was 1991. Um, a couple of teenagers, uh, were, well, apparently they were eventually they were convicted of murdering nine members of a Buddhist monastery there. I think it was monks and nuns. Uh, I won't go into the, the grisly details. It's very awful. And, and they, were, they were brutally murdered in this temple. And um, eventually these two guys were convicted, teenagers. And uh, one of them... Um, acknowledged his guilt and then uh, gave the evidence against the other guy. And the other guy was um, the uh, public prosecutor, or whatever he's called, uh, was heading for, was uh, asking for execution. He wanted to have this guy executed. And, but there's a, a statute or there's a, an allowance in the law, uh, I think it's called Victim's Protection or something, in, 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 in this county, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, whereby the victims can actually go into the court and argue for harsher judgment for the abuser. But in this case, uh, the victims were arguing against the harsh punishment uh, that the, the Buddhists involved, saying we don't support the death penalty. We do not support this execution. And the public prosecutor was rather stumped because he's used to having it go the other way, apparently, and... This is very much, this is the Buddhist way. There's always room for forgiveness. There's always room for correction. There's always room for making things right. There's always room for beginning again. Mm. Whereas if the heart is, is, uh, is still lost in delusion, uh, then the mind is going out into the world. And, and, and very often it's, it's in a case of blaming, yeah. seeking revenge, wanting to hurt others. He hurt me, she hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. Yeah. And that, that, that outflow of, of the heart into resentment is not the sign of somebody on the path. So within ourselves or looking at others, we wonder, does this accord with Dhamma? Does this accord with somebody who's on the path? Who knows the path? Well, if there's any impulse to hurt living beings, even a fly, not to mention cats. We have a cat that doesn't understand this principle at all. It just loves going around killing things. And it's fat. It's gotten so fat now, I think it can barely jump over the gate. And um, but then you know that's the cat's consciousness. I've actually got a more elevated consciousness than the cat. So when I actually have resentment for the cat, you know that's not right. That's not suitable. Even though I really don't like that cat, you know when there's resentment towards the cat and wishing the cat ill will, like I wish it got so fat it couldn't walk, sort of thing. You know, that's not suitable. <laughs> yeah. Now uh, uh, that's obviously you know um, we laugh at that, but. 
but you know we can bear resentments and grudges against other people in our lives or against ourselves you know, ill will directed towards ourselves that does not accord with the path so if we have this understanding if we have this concept if we have this model and this is what's so beautiful about studying the buddha's teachings you get these models these simple little verses and really chew on them really take them in and, and see you know see that verse on your calendar each month each day of the month you look at it and and you say, what does it mean? What do these words mean? Peaceful, pure, uh, contained, awake, blameless. Yeah. And really contemplate them, take them in and little by little. It's like educating our hearts. Yeah. We, if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. The same with like children. Those of you that are parents, you know, you know children need to be educated. The idea, that the primitive savage idea of, you know, like you just put all children on an island and, and they all grow up to be civilized human beings well I think that's been very clearly proven as it doesn't work like that uh, yeah. ignorant human beings have a tendency to behave very badly and so what we can do as adults is actually steward their consciousness in a way whereby we protect them against themselves yeah, the, the, the consequence of their ignorance we protect them against that and so as with children they don't know how to say no yeah. like they have the impulse, they want to hurt somebody, or want to hurt an animal. Well, we find parents, you find a way of actually helping them come to see, you know, there's consequences to that, you know. You hurt that boy, and then what's he going to do? Yeah. He's going to come back and want to hurt you. So was that clever, or was that not clever? And so with using this encouragement, yeah, we can educate children, or with giving. And to show children the example of, of the beauty of dana, the beauty of giving, the beauty of making offerings. Yeah. Yeah, to show them, if you, you want to get to know somebody, you go and give them something. You know, if uh, a young child wants to meet somebody else, they actually know this themselves. And they just, normally, they, just, they go and give a gift, and as soon as you give something to somebody, then the relationship opens up. Now, if you're mindful of that, well, then the heart learns, that, oh, right, yeah, that's, that's actually, that's a way of making ourselves happy. You know, to give things. And then when, if somebody's learnt that, if they've been brought up well, they know that. And then in their adult life, when they're feeling depressed, feeling miserable, feeling hard done by, you know, they haven't got a lot of money, maybe haven't got a job. Well, if they haven't learned that and they're really caught up in the contraction of selfishness, well, then they go deeper and deeper into sadness and pain. But if they have learnt the skill of dana. Well, then even though they don't have much, they'll be able to go and give something. And in the giving, the heart gets gladdened a little bit. You know, even if it's just giving some food to the cat or giving some seeds to the birds or some water to the birds in winter. Or, and if we haven't got much, there's always something we can get. Or even just giving attention. Yeah. Like in a supermarket, you know, with the, the person in the checkout. You know, just to look at them and, and sense what this person's life must be like standing there on their feet for hours and hours and hours with that noise, beep, 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 and the, the register, you know, every time they put it under the light and it makes this awful noise and what that must be like and, and to feel the suffering of this person's life, not in a judgment, but to feel with them, with empathy, to feel the suffering of this person. And when they give you a change, you say, thank you, in a way you really mean it. And that's giving something as well. Yeah. So in any moment we can always give. In any moment, we can always train our hearts. And we do, to recognize we need to train our hearts, just as parents need to train children. Yeah. If we don't train our hearts, well, then the hearts just go in any old which direction. Yeah. 
even though hopefully we've, we've learned to behave ourselves good enough in the world, that's not enough for us to realize the path and its fruits. And if we really want to realize the path the Buddha was talking about, well, then this is, these are some hints about the kind of training that we can do. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.